Part three of Mendelssohn and Certain Masterworks by Herbert F. Pieser. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Early in 1835, the composer received from Dr. Conrad Schleinitz a communication which showed that his good fortunes were to remain constant. It was nothing less than an invitation to accept the post of conductor of the Gewandhaus concerts in Leipzig. Mendelssohn was flattered, but experience had made him canny. Before giving his reply, he demanded categorical answers to a number of questions touching artistic and business matters. Everything was settled to his satisfaction, and with his parents, his sisters, and their husbands, he returned to the Rhineland to conduct another Lower Rhine festival, this time to be held in Cologne. If there was one place which promised to provide as happy a home for Felix as London did, it was Leipzig. The atmosphere of the town was a spiritual balm after the hectic life of Düsseldorf. Who can say that it was not with symbolic intent that the newcomer let off his activities with his own Calm Sea Overture and Beethoven's Serene Fourth Symphony? Although Felix's circle of musical friendships sometimes appeared boundless, he now came into intimate contact with certain choice and master spirits of the age whom he might otherwise have known only casually. An early visitor at Mendelssohn's new home was Chopin, and in a letter to his parents in Berlin he writes of his pleasure in being able to associate once more with a thorough musician. One of those to whom Felix introduced Chopin was Clara Wieck, then only sixteen. On October 3, a historic date as it proved, another stepped into the charmed circle, Robert Schumann, to whom Mendelssohn was to become a god. Felix Meritus entered, wrote Schumann, describing in his best Floristan vein the first Gewandhaus concert. In a moment a hundred hearts flew to him. Light-heartedly, Felix accompanied his sister, Rebecca, and her husband on a trip to the family homestead in Berlin. There seemed to be even more gaiety than usual, and a greater amount of extempore music-making for the entertainment of the father. A short time after he had returned to Leipzig in great good humor, he was shocked by the entrance of his brother-in-law, Hensel, with the news that Abraham Mendelssohn had died in his sleep on November 19, 1835. The blow was heavy, but Felix, once he regained control of himself, endured it with fortitude. Yet the loss of the father, whom to the last he idolized, marked the first great sorrow of his life. To Pastor Schubring he wrote, The only thing now is to do one's duty. It sounds like a copybook maxim, but it was undoubtedly sincere. His specific duty in this case was to complete the still unfinished St. Paul, about which Abraham had been ceaselessly inquiring. Logically, the oratorio should have been given by the Sicilianverein in Frankfurt, which had originally commissioned it. But Schäbel, the director of the society, was ill, so the premiere took place at the Düsseldorf Festival of 1836. Klingemann, who sent an account of it to the London Musical News, said that the performance was glorious, that he had never heard such choral singing. The composer himself was more restrained. Many things gave me great pleasure, but on the whole I learned a great deal. 
he had come to the conclusion that the work, like so many of his others, would benefit by a careful overhauling, and in due course he set about recasting and improving. He had grounds for satisfaction. If St. Paul does not reach some of the prouder dramatic heights of the later Elijah, it is a woeful error to underrate it. Mendelssohn felt he owed it to his old friend Schäbel to take over the direction of the Sicilian Verein, so he cancelled a Swiss vacation he had planned and went to Frankfurt. He hobnobbed with the Hiller family and with Rossini, who happened to be in Germany for a few days. But more important, he made the acquaintance of Cécile Charlotte Sophie Jeanneroux, daughter of a clergyman of the French Reformed Church. Cécile's widowed mother was herself still so young and attractive that for a time people thought that she, rather than the seventeen-year-old girl, was the cause of Felix's frequent visits. Fanny Hensel had latterly been urging her brother to marry, alarmed by his somewhat morbid state of mind. Cécile Généraux, according to Wilhelm Hensel, complimented Felix most harmoniously. Still, she was not conspicuously clever, witty, learned, profound, or talented, though restful and refreshing. Mendelssohn was not the man to let his affection stampede him into marriage. So, before an engagement might be announced, he accompanied his friend, the painter Shadow, on a month's journey to the Dutch seaside resort, Scheveningen there to take long walks on the beach, think things over, and come to an understanding with himself. Only then did he settle definitely upon the step. The marriage took place in Frankfurt on March 28, 1837, and the couple went for a honeymoon to Freiburg and the Black Forest. The wedding trip was followed by a seemingly unending round of social obligations. Nevertheless, Mendelssohn found time for considerable work. Then a summons to England to produce St. Paul at the Birmingham Festival. The oratorio had already been given in Liverpool and by the Sacred Harmonic Society in London. If only St. Paul had been the whole story. But Mendelssohn had enormous miscellaneous programs to conduct. He played the organ. He was soloist in his own D minor piano concerto. Back in Leipzig, he settled with his wife in a house at Lurgenstein's garden, welcomed Fanny, who saw for the first time those beautiful eyes of Cécile about which she had heard so much, and greeted the arrival of a son named Karl Wolfgang Paul. The Gewandhaus concerts flourished as never before. Felix produced much Bach, Handel, and Beethoven, also, he had many of those typical German prize-crowned scores of sickening mediocrity to perform. Musical friends came and went, Schumann, Clara Wieck, Liszt, Berlioz, and a young Englishman, Sterndale Bennett, whom both Mendelssohn and Schumann praised to a degree which we today can scarcely grasp. Small wonder that amidst all this unmerciful and never-ending ferment, Felix occasionally became worried about his health. I am again suffering from deafness in one ear, pains in my throat, headaches, and so on, he wrote to Hiller. Occasionally his friends made fun of his intense love of sleep. One can only regret that he did not yield to it more often. 
We must pass over Mendelssohn's unending labors in Leipzig at a number of German festivals, and in England, where his new symphony cantata, The Hymn of Praise, was featured, to follow him once more to Berlin. In 1840, Frederick Wilhelm IV had become King of Prussia. One of the pet cultural schemes of the monarch was an Academy of Arts, to be divided into classes of painting, sculpture, architecture, and music. For the direction of the last apartment, the king wanted none but Mendelssohn. Hence, much correspondence passed between Mendelssohn and the bureaucrats concerning the royal scheme. Time had not softened his hostility toward officialdom, particularly of the Berlin brand. However, he bound himself for a year, took up residence on the Leipziger Strasse once more, submitted his scheme for the musical academy, and received the title Kapellmeister to the King of Prussia, along with a very tolerable salary. Frederick William wished, among other things, to revive certain antique Greek tragedies, beginning with Sophocles' Antigone. The scheme led to exhaustive discussions between Mendelssohn and the poet Tieck, touching the nature of the music to be written. In due course there followed Oedipus at Colonus. The kind of music needed was, as it will probably remain forever, a problem-defying solution. What Mendelssohn finally wrote turned out, by and large, to be adequate Mendelssohnian commonplace. Greek tragedy was not the only sort of dramatic entertainment projected by the King of Prussia. Racine's Atelier, Shakespeare's Tempest, and Midsummer Night's Dream likewise took their place on the royal schedule. Nothing came of the Tempest, so far as Mendelssohn was concerned, but he fashioned some excellent music for Racine's play, and enriched the Midsummer Night's Dream with an incidental score, which may well be inseparably associated with the immortal fantasy to the end of time. There was, to be sure, no need for a new overture, Felix having written the most perfect conceivable one in his boyhood but a dozen other numbers, long or short, were called for, and with the most consummate ease and soaring inspiration Mendelssohn produced them. They are exquisitely delicate settings of Shakespeare's elfin songs and choruses, a funeral march of extravagant grotesqueness, clownish dance music, a flashing intermezzo depicting the pursuit of the lovers through the wood, and other background pieces. The memorable concert numbers, however, are the incomparable scherzo, perhaps the most priceless of all the famous scherzi the composer wrote, the romantic nocturne with its rapturous horn reverie, and the triumphant wedding march, a ringing processional which in reality belongs to all mankind rather than to Shakespeare's stage lovers. The royal scheme for the academy was not advancing, and presently the plans began to gather dust in official pigeonholes. Frederick William, seeing the turn things were taking, appointed his Kapellmeister the head of the music performed in the dome. The Thing Academy, conscience-stricken over its earlier treatment of the composer, now made him an honorary member. For all that, Mendelssohn was not fundamentally happier in Berlin than he had been previously. Fortunately, he had not resigned his Gewandhaus post when he left Leipzig, and it had again become more desirable to him than all the royal distinctions Berlin could confer. 
He had added greatly to his creative output during this period. For one thing, he had rewritten the Walpurgisnacht and finished the Scotch Symphony, and now he was occupied with plans for a new music school in Leipzig, the famous conservatory, first domiciled in the Gewandhaus. In January 1843, its prospectus was issued. The faculty was to include men like the theorist Moritz Hauptmann, the violinist Ferdinand David, the organist Karl Becker, and finally as professors of composition and piano Schumann and Mendelssohn. Felix was not really overjoyed at the prospect of pedagogical drudgery, yet to Hiller he wrote, I shall have to go three or four times a week and talk about six-four chords. I am quite willing to do this for the love of the cause, because I believe it to be a good cause. Quite as peacefully as her husband, Leah Mendelssohn died shortly before Christmas, 1842. Felix grieved, if he was perhaps less stricken than by the passing of his father. Doubtless he felt once more that nothing remained but to do his duty, and these duties were unsparing and seemed to grow more numerous and complex as the years went by. One sometimes questions if, truly, the labors of a Bach, a Haydn, and a Mozart were more ramified and unending than Mendelssohn's, even if he had no need to toil in order to keep the wolf from the door. As time passed, the Mendelssohn craze in England grew steadily by what it fed on, and it was only natural that Felix should find himself repeatedly in London. He alluded to his successes and to the intensity of his welcome by his British friends as scandalous, and declared himself completely stunned by it all. I think I must have been applauded for ten minutes, and after the first concert almost trampled upon. The young Queen Victoria was quite as effusive as her subjects. She invited the composer to Buckingham Palace, and was graciousness itself. He played her seven of his songs without words, then the serenade, then fantasies on Rule Britannia, Lutzkau's Wilde Jagd, and Gaudiamus Igitur. It was by no means the only time British royalty was to show him favor. Up to the year of his death, Victoria and Albert were to shower distinctions upon him, to treat him as it were like one of the family. Doubtless this is as good an opportunity as another to particularize. On one memorable occasion the Queen sang to his accompaniment, and both she and her consort scrambled to pick up sheets of music that had fallen off the piano. On another, the sovereign asked if there were anything she could do to please Dr. Mendelssohn. There was, indeed. Could Her Majesty let him for a few moments visit the royal nursery? Nothing Dr. Mendelssohn could have wished would have delighted Victoria more. Unceremoniously leading the way, she showed him all the mysteries of the place, opened closets, wardrobes, and cupboards, and in a few minutes the two were deep in a discussion of infants' underwear, illnesses, and diets. Mendelssohn and Cecile's own family was growing by this time, and might easily profit by the example of Buckingham Palace. The Queen found so much delight in the Scotch symphony that the composer promptly dedicated it to her. But for that matter, England could have scarcely hear enough of it, 
whether or not one ranks it as high as the italian the a minor unquestionably represents the other half of mendelssohn's chief symphonic accomplishment the question to what degree it embodies scottish elements or any appreciable degree of local color is less important than the fact that it is strong impassioned music informed with a ruggedness and conflict unlike the sunnier a major there is a mood of tumult and drama in the first movement whose closing subject is a definite prefigurement of the songful theme in the opening allegro of brahms second symphony the scherzo begins with a sort of jubilant extension of the irish folk song the minstrel boy and the buoyant movement as a whole is full of tingling life on the other hand the adagio undoubtedly displays a weakness characterizing so many of mendelssohn's slow movements it is sentimental rather than searching or personal since with mendelssohn grief is only a recollection of former joys yet the finale is superbly vital and the sonorous coda with which it concludes has a regal stateliness and a bardic ring whatever honors labors irritations and unending travels and fatigues were his portion on the continent and they seemed steadily to increase it was to england that mendelssohn continually turned to refresh his spirit not that his toil there was lighter or his welcome less hectic but there was something about it all that filled his soul people presented him with medals commemorative addresses they organized torchlight processions sang serenades and almost killed him with kindness yet we are told that he never enjoyed himself more than when in the midst of society music fun and excitement a mad most extraordinary mad time never in bed till half-past one for three weeks together not a single hour to myself in any one day i have made more music in these two months than elsewhere in two years he ordered a huge baumkuchen from berlin though usually grove informs us he made no great ado over the products of the kitchen his chief enjoyment being milk rice and cherry pie his power of recovery after fatigue was said to be as great as his powers of enjoyment with it all he was never dissipated the only stimulants he indulged in were music society and boundless good spirits seemingly it never occurred to him that even a strong constitution can have too much of these when mendelssohn became conductor of the gavantaus orchestra he appointed as his concertmaster his old friend the violinist ferdinand david who it will be recalled was born in the same house at hamburg as early as eighteen thirty eight felix had written to david i should like to write a violin concerto for you next winter one in e minor runs through my head the beginning of which gives me no peace actually he had tried his hand at a violin concerto accompanied by a string orchestra during his boyhood though this was only a kind of student effort but david took the promise seriously and when nothing came of it for a time determined not to let mendelssohn forget it fully five years elapsed before the composer finished in its first form the concerto which to this day stands with the violin concertos of beethoven brahms and tchaikovsky as the most enduring of the repertoire 
For the various technical problems of the solo part and even of the orchestration, David was constantly at the disposal of his friend. He offered numberless hints of the utmost value, and is even believed to have shaped the cadenza in the first movement as we know it. Even after the score was presumably complete, David advised further changes and improvements, so that the work did not acquire its conclusive aspect till February 1845. On the following March 13, it was performed by David at a Gewandhaus concert. Not under the composer's direction, however. The latter was in Frankfurt in poor health and greatly worn out, and had no stomach for the excitement of another premiere. The conductor was his Danish friend, Niels W. Gade. It was not until two weeks later that David apologized by letter for his delay in describing the triumph of the concerto. The work pleased extraordinarily well, and was unanimously declared to be one of the most beautiful compositions of its kind. In more than a century there has been no reason to alter this verdict. Mendelssohn's constitution may have been resilient and his recuperative powers as remarkable as his friends imagined, but it should have been clear to the more far-sighted among them that sooner or later these incessant journeys, this interminable business of composing, conducting, playing, teaching, organizing, must exact a stern penalty. It is not surprising that, at the time the violin concerto was given in Leipzig, he preferred to remain in Frankfurt with his wife and the children, who had gone through quite a siege of juvenile illnesses, and make a serious effort to rest. But truly efficacious rest is a habit that must be systematically cultivated. Felix did not possess it in his earlier years, nor could he acquire it now when overwork promised to consume the sensitive fiber of his being. Yet in the summer of 1845 he was approached once more with a scheme of major dimensions. The Birmingham Festival Committee offered him the direction of a festival planned for August 1846 and asked him to compose a performance, in this case a new oratorio. He was sensible enough to refuse to conduct the whole festival, but he was willing to produce such an oratorio, even if only ten months remained to compose most of the score and rehearse the performance. The prophet Elijah had engrossed his imagination as an oratorio subject ever since he had completed St. Paul, and discussed the new work with his friend Klingemann. In 1839 he had corresponded with Pastor Schubring about a text, and he had even made rudimentary sketches for the music. Other obligations crowded it out of his mind. Now, six years later, he returned to it. He realized that the time was short, but his heart was set on Elijah, although he was prudent enough to suggest some other work if the oratorio should, by any chance, strike a snag. Mendelssohn could write fast, too fast, perhaps, for his artistic good. Still, Elijah was a heartbreaking assignment. It is only just to say that he realized certain inadequacies of the first version, and revised not a little of the score after hearing it. 
His labors were complicated by the lengthy correspondence he was obliged to carry on with William Bartholomew, the translator. Mendelssohn insisted on a close adherence to the King James Version of the Bible, with the result that the English words often conform neither to the accent nor the sense of the German originals. The choice of a soprano offered another problem. The composer wanted Jenny Lind, whom he admired extravagantly. He loved her F-sharp, and the note seems to have haunted his mind when he wrote the air, Hear ye Israel. But Jenny Lind was unavailable, and he had to be satisfied with a Maria Caradori Allen, whom he disliked, and whose singing he afterwards described as so pretty, so pleasing, so elegant, and at the same time so flat, so unintelligent, so soulless, that the music acquired a sort of amiable expression about which I could go mad. Be all of which as it may, Caradori Allen was paid as much for singing in the first Elijah as Mendelssohn was for composing it. The precious creature actually told him at a rehearsal that Hear Ye Israel was not a lady's song, and asked him to have it transposed and otherwise altered. However, the first performance in Birmingham, August 26, 1846, was a triumph for the composer, though, to be candid, the uncritical adulation of the audience had settled the verdict in advance. The report of Mendelssohn's boyhood friend, Julius Benedict, is typical. The noble town hall was crowded at an early hour of that forenoon with a brilliant and eagerly expectant audience. Every eye had long been directed toward the conductor's desk when, at half-past eleven o'clock, a deafening shout from the band and chorus announced the approach of the great composer. The reception he met from the assembled thousands was absolutely overwhelming, whilst the sun, emerging at that moment, seemed to illumine the vast edifice in honor of the bright and pure being who stood there, the idol of the beholders. It enhances one's respect for the artistic probity of Mendelssohn that he preserved his balance. He evaluated his work critically, carefully modified or enlarged it, and obliged Bartholomew to make a quantity of changes in the English text. On April 16, 1847, he conducted the revised version in the first of four performances by the Sacred Harmonic Society in Exeter Hall, London. On April 23, the Queen and the Prince Consort heard the work. Albert wrote in the Book of Words and sent to Mendelssohn a dedication to the noble artist who, surrounded by the ball-worship of debased art, has been able by his genius and science to preserve faithfully, like another Elijah, the worship of true art, and once more to accustom our ears amid the whirl of empty frivolous sounds to the pure tones of sympathetic feeling and legitimate harmony to the great master who makes us conscious of the unity of his conception through the whole maze of his creation from the soft whispering to the mighty raging of the elements inscribed in grateful remembrance by albert it was a fitting climax to Mendelssohn's tenth visit to England, in some ways his most memorable, in any case his last. Before Mendelssohn left London, he paid a farewell visit to Buckingham Palace. He had a mysterious presentiment that he must leave hurriedly. Friends pressed him to remain in England a little longer. 
Ah, I wish I may not already have stayed too long here. One more week of this unremitting fatigue, and I should be killed outright. He was manifestly ill. Fate caught up with him at Frankfurt. Scarcely had he arrived in a state of prostration when he abruptly learned that his sister, Fanny Hensel, had died while at the piano conducting a choir rehearsal. With a shriek, Felix collapsed. The shock of the news and the violence of his fall on hearing it brought about a rupture of one of those delicate cerebral blood vessels which had caused so many deaths in the Mendelssohn family. In a measure he recovered. He went to Baden-Baden and later to Switzerland. He wrote letters, sketched and still composed. He greeted friends from England. He learned that London and Liverpool wanted new symphonies and cantatas. This time he did nothing about it. When he finally returned in September to Leipzig, he seemed to feel better, though Moschelis meeting him was frightened to see how he had aged and changed. On October 9, while visiting his friend the singer Livia Frega in connection with some leader he planned to publish, he was seized with a chill. He hurried home and was put to bed, tortured by violent headaches. He had planned to go to Vienna late in the month to conduct Elijah with Jenny Lind as the soprano. Of this there could now be no question. On November 3, 1847, he suffered another stroke and lay, it is claimed, unconscious, though Ferdinand David says that till ten in the evening he screamed frightfully, then made noises as if he heard the sounds of drums and trumpets. During the following day the pains seemed to cease, but his face was that of a dying man. Sometime between 9.15 and 9.30 in the evening he ceased to breathe. He was exactly three months short of thirty-nine years old. Grouped about the bed were his wife, his brother Paul, David, Schleinitz, and Moschelis. Through Fanny's death our family was destroyed, wrote Paul Mendelssohn to Klingemann. Through Felix's it is annihilated. Leipzig was stunned by the news. It is lovely weather here, wrote a young English music student, but an awful stillness prevails. We feel as if the king were dead. Posthumously, Mendelssohn's fate seemed like a strange reversal of his supreme idol's Bach. Bach passed into long eclipse, then, largely through Mendelssohn's heroic efforts, underwent a miracle of resurrection which has grown more overpowering clear down to our own time. Mendelssohn, almost preposterously famous at his death, was before very long pronounced outmoded, overrated, virtually negligible. The whole history of music scarcely shows a more violent backswing of the pendulum. To take pleasure in any but a handful of Mendelssohn's works was for decades to lose caste, if not to invite ignominy. By 1910, just about the centenary of his birth, the low watermark of derogation had been reached. Now, a hundred years after his death, a most definite reaction is in progress. Is it not rather a salutary readjustment than a mere reaction? If Mendelssohn's poorer works have not endured, is it not better so? Struggle and suffering might indeed have lent a deeper undertone to his songs, or enabled his adagios, in old Sir George Grove's word, to draw tears where now they only give a saddened pleasure. 
but let us take a man as we have him surely there is enough conflict and violence in life and in art when we want to be made unhappy we can turn to others it is well in these agitated modern days to be able to point to one perfectly balanced nature in whose life whose letters and whose music alike all is at once manly and refined clever and pure brilliant and solid for the enjoyment of such shining heights of goodness we may well forego for once the depths of misery and sorrow and grove's words take on an added poignancy precisely because they were not spoken of an epoch as grievous as our own End of part three End of Mendelssohn and Certain Masterworks by Herbert F. Pieser